Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones, as always your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the content of our weekly wrap-up, Another Week Ends, which you can find on our website, mbird.com. In it, we take a look at what happened on the interwebs that we think Christian cosmopolitan types with a passion for God's grace and word of forgiveness should be paying attention to and pondering. So we'll have today back on the show, Ethan Richardson to discuss Another Weekend, which he authored this week. But before we talk with Ethan, we're going to have Sarah Condon back on the show to talk a little bit about resolutions, New Year's resolutions and resolute faith. Stephen Hawking said his advice to other disabled people would be, concentrate on things your disability doesn't prevent you doing well, and don't regret the things it interferes with. Don't be disabled in spirit as well as physically. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. It seems there's a deep connection between worldly sorrow and regret. The flourishing human life, I think, is lived in three tenses, past, present, and future. We look back to the past with grace, consider it warts and all, and we can learn from it. We can be thankful for it. We can be sad over some of it, but ultimately, we don't get stuck in it. Because we also need to be able to look to the future in hope, expectation, and if we're honest, a bit of anxiety. And I think it's in those moments of looking back and forward with grace and gratitude that orient us for a present that can be full of meaning. So today we'll talk a little bit about regret and resolve and how they keep us from true relief now. With no further ado, Sarah Condon. Cast for return appearance to talk about resolute spirituality. Yeah, is the Reverend. Can I say very Reverend, even though no, you can't. <laughs> I know, I know. That's really technically for You'll a bishop, get me in right? trouble. <laughs> Would you really get flagged? Like, oh my no, gosh! No, no, so no, no. Listen to the mocking cast the other day. Like the Episcopal police would show up at your church. Right. Like, all right, this is a citation. It's a one-time citation. <laughs> yeah, but right. if you're called that again, that's right. And don't stop them. But you stopped me, so it would be okay. Yeah. The Episcopal um, police have other problems, thankfully, than that. Okay. <laughs> that's good. That's good. You're not a big problem in their, that's you right. know, on their horizon. So, Sarah Condon, you are a pastor, a priest, a mom, a wife, mm-hmm. a cultural interpreter, mm. a southern specialist mm-hmm. by, by training academically and by origin by and birth. all around. Interesting person. Oh, thanks. You're sweet. So, 
let's talk about well, this is the day, right? This is you were sharing a fact with me earlier that this is a special time of the year. Uh not liturgically maybe, but just in general. And yeah. What's its significance. Well, it's an interesting time of year, um, because I mean I think it's an interesting time of year in terms of resolutions in our spirituality and that it's kind of the valley between the two peaks of the um the secular New Year's resolutions that people make. And then we're headed, you know, where we can see Lent, right? We know we're headed in that direction. So it's a funny time of year to me in that way. Like, um, I was just reading that towards the end of January, uh, one in three people who've made a New Year's resolution have given up on it. And sometimes I think Lent, especially this year, Lent's early. So we're going to head into it in February pretty quickly. Um, Lent becomes this way to be like, well, I, you know, I couldn't like make my whatever diet, exercise more, read more, go to church more or whatever resolution happen, you know, at New Year's and here's Lent. So like, I'll just drag Jesus into it. You know it's like mean? a do over. <laughs> yeah. It's a do over. You get to yeah. do it. Wouldn't it be great if Lent was like, if there was like an animal, like Groundhog Day, like. And it came out and you decide what Lent was going to be like, well, it's going to be really tough Lent. It's going to be hard. So like if there was some sort of thing, like if the, you know, if like, I don't know, something liturgical animal sees it shadow. But did you make a New Year's resolution? No. <laughs> Look, you're like, are you kidding me? No. no. I didn't either. I never did. Like, but Scott, like, don't you wake up every day and make a resolution you're not going to pull off? Like, I don't need like a yearly one. Like in the morning I get up and I'm like, I'm going to try to be more patient with my kids. And then like, maybe that happens or maybe like both of them spill milk all over the place at the same time. And I mean, like, I don't, I can't make a resolution for a year. Cause like, I can't even get to eight 30 in the morning. Yeah. It's interesting too, that we do it this time of the year. That's dark and cold. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, this guy does the thing, whine about it. He's a uh, Matt Tereski or something, but he works for Buzzfeed and, he basically drinks wine at his desk every Wednesday, mm -hmm. um, gets drunk and whines about things. So he whines uh -huh. about New Year's. He's like, and he says, "No, uh, old uh, New Year, new me. I didn't care about the old version of you." <laughs> <laughs> but why do you think, like the like the resolute spiritual? By resolute, I mean yeah, you know, resolution. I'm resolving to do this. I'm kind of like what? I feel like that is okay. You're right. Most people don't succeed with it. And it's probably actually uh, a self-defeating thing psychologically. Right. Sure. But yet people love it. I mean, people sure. love it. What sure. is the appeal? Well, because then you have control, right? Then you get to say, like, I'm going to run. I'm going to run the show. I'm going to make this happen. And it always reminds me of that passage. Oh, it's from it's Matthew. And I, I think it's Matthew and it's Jesus. and He's out in the field with um, with his uh, disciples and the Pharisees criticize the disciples because they break off some wheat because they're right. hungry. And Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Yes. And I always think of that when I think about New Year's resolutions, because we want to like we want to sacrifice we because we want to control it. We want to say, here are the terms. You know what I mean? Here are the terms. We don't want to think like Jesus is torn up the contract. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's like we want to say, we want to say what goes on the altar 
we don't want to accept the wild truth that Jesus put himself there. And so resolutions are this way to control that, I think. Yeah, Gerhard Forda in his book, uh, Where God Meets Man, it's a great little summary of like Lutheran, Protestant, grace-oriented theology. But he says, you know, look mm-hmm. at the songs we sing. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. It's like we were okay with the cross, but what the cross is, is like we failed climbing the ladder. And then the cross comes and it's a new ladder we can climb up. Instead of saying, no, the cross <laughs> breaks the ladder and breaks the, <laughs> like we, we sort of don't receive it and we turn the cross into a new resolute thing. Like, right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I actually love the idea of like, um, like a Lenten, like Groundhog Day, like that in that, like, wouldn't it be great if like, if like it took every single day of us waking up and being like, we're going to make a New Year's resolution and that's how we're going to get back to church or whatever. And then, and then at some point it clicked and like, maybe we just got out of bed and like held up a white flag, you know, and we're like, all right, God, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I finally get it. Like, it's that moment where, where like, you know, uh, where the character realizes that it's not in this manipulation of self that he accomplishes. My favorite part of that film, by the way, is when he, you know, is trying to kill himself and he steals the groundhog and he's in the chase and he's like, he's the groundhog's driving. And it's just, okay, check yeah. your ears. <laughs> Check yours. Don't drive angry. Don't drive angry. <laughs> that was awesome. It's I've actually great. been to Punxsutawney on Groundhog Day. Wow. Yeah, that's it's awesome. It's just like the movie. It's just it? like the movie. Although they kind of boo the movie a little bit because they didn't film it there. But uh, uh, but it is very cool. It's very cold. Yeah, but it's very cool. I bet. That's awesome. So what do you think? Okay. What would be an alternative framework? Like if you're thinking like, all right, this is kind of like, your shot at a kind of mockingbird grace oriented approach to Christian practice or, you know, like how would, could you reframe this so that like there was more like, I don't know, is it a theology of like reception versus one of resolve? Yeah. I mean, receptions are really, I think reception is a beautiful word. I mean, the word that for me, and this is such a personal thing, but for me, the word, the phrase is just like giving up. I mean, like I wrote about in my piece going to church, going back to church after having not been in church for a long time and really hearing the voice of God say to me, you know, it's just one foot in front of the other. You know, there was no, I didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't feel like people there so loved me. You know, I mean, it was a really hard place to put myself in. And suddenly there was God stepping in, in this, just with so much consolation, you know, and, and forgiveness. And, and honestly, I didn't write this about this in the piece, but that journey started for me in a synagogue because I dated somebody for a long time who I thought I would marry, who was Jewish and I would go. And so I tried synagogue for a long time for probably two years in college. You would have been a huge pickup for any religion. I mean, you would have been, (laughs) I mean, that would have been huge for, you would have been a big get for that. Yeah, I, could, I could have been a rabbi, but, but I was sitting in the pews. I mean, it's one of those strange experiences we have in, in Christianity and our religious faith. I was sitting in the pews of this temple of the synagogue and I literally heard Jesus like five pews back say to me, honey, you know, you don't belong here. Like this is not your place. And that, I mean, so for me, like I, it's what as was much his voice I, like? Was his voice like Brad Pitt, or was it more like Italy? Wait, you know, is it? It was like a Southern grandmother. Okay, all right, <laughs> I like that. I like that. I mean, 
that's how I, I mean, you know, I, I am shaped by my meme all religiously. So that, that works for me. But my big moments, uh, you know, in religion have never been on my own volition ever. Yeah. You know, you write about the prodigal son story in your piece. Yeah. And, you know, the way I always look at that story, it's like he's rehearsing his speech. Right. And we've all done that. Right. Like yeah. we rehearsed our speeches. And so yeah. I don't think that's the like, I really think what Grace does is it makes you stop saying the rehearsed speech. God, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, that's where the real transformation happens. Not when it's like, Father, I'm so good. But it's when the Father, without hearing the rehearsed then you can stop the, the rehearsed speech. Because the, the rehearsed speech is still the act of self-preservation in, in a way that is like the resolved spirituality, the resolute kind of spirituality. But I think the receptive right. one comes when the, when the prepared speech stops. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Which is so true in a lot of relationships. Like when you've st- when you stop trying to like somehow coerce or manipulate or whatever, you know, it's, I just, I, I reread that Sally Lloyd Jones story, you know, where she tells the prodigal son and it's like, it's just, it's just so beautiful because it feels, you know, this guy's in the middle of what he's going to say, what he's been working on and God, it, you know, in the form of this father I mean, knocks him over with an embrace. I mean, it, he he won't. I just I love that this verbal is stopped with the physical. You know, it's I don't know. It's just amazing. Yeah, and don't you think like what the speech rehearsal and the resolute stuff and resolutions have in common is like you can self condemn mm. without anyone's help. In some ways, it's the most prideful thing, but because you're the only person. About it. But to live forgiven requires others. It requires like you to open up your story to someone who you need grace from or to God, like on a horizontal or vertical level. So all of yeah. a sudden you lose control of your story. Yeah. For, but, but the self-condemnation or the self-achievement, I control the narrative. Right. Uh, right. And, and something about that is it's just addictive, I guess, to human beings. Yeah. I mean, I think it's why like I – you know, the AA community is so incredible to me, right? Because they start by saying they're powerless and their story and really God working through their story becomes an imperative way for them to face recovery. And I mean, I always wonder, uh, you know, John Zoll wrote that fantastic book about, you know, grace and AA and what the church can learn from, um, from the walking the steps. And, I, I just think it would be incredible if everyone did that, you know, because we would recognize how powerless we are in the midst of life struggles and and find some rest in what God is doing despite us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This is where I think uh, there's something about uh, penitential liturgy that is a lovely thing, like where you just um, where you you are reminded every week that you <laughs> of who you are, I mean, like, uh, who and whose you mm-hmm. are by your failure um, and your need right. for healing. You know, you're not, not just like a re you don't, you don't just need like uh, you don't need good advice. You need good news at that point. You need a new right. story. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, it's like mockingbird had this really famous post that I, um, 
that a video they posted that I think about a lot and have used in so many sermons and it's Whitney Houston's uh, funeral, the um, speech that Tyler Perry did. Did you see this? I'm a huge Whitney Houston fan. So I like watched it live on CNN. I didn't, I didn't. Well, So it's worth going back on the site and finding it. But Tyler Perry um, starts by talking about Whitney Houston and he says, we have this interesting conversation. They had lunch together. They didn't know each other well. And, um, and she starts to openly talk about her life struggles and, you know, she's addiction, abuse, tough marriage. I mean, she had it all. And Tyler Perry kept wanting to kind of stop her, like kept wanting to say, oh, but you're going to be fine. And, you know, look at you out there fighting the good fight or whatever. And before he can get that out, Whitney Houston says to him, but the Lord, and then she'll say, but my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it reminds me so much of, and I don't have it memorized, I should, but the prayer for humble access mm-hmm, that we mm-hmm. say, you know, in the right one liturgy in the Episcopal Church, where it's like, you know, oh, Lord, I'm not worthy to receive the crumbs from thy table. And then it's like, and th- but it's, it's but total only, Whitney Houston, right? But, but only say the word. Yeah. I mean, it's and like. I sh- it's, and I shall be healed. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's like our Whitney Houston prayer. So yeah. like. Yeah, I think that I find that stuff so comforting. Yeah. Well, so Sarah, if any encouragement for people out there, a beginning Lenten journey, like whether maybe, I mean, Ooh. some people listening to this, I'm sure are, you know, looking to celebrate Lent in a way that connects them, you know, to the story and presence of Jesus. And there's a lot of ministers listening to this that are probably trying to help you know, help people facilitate that journey for people. Sure. So what can you tell us? I mean, I think thinking about, and I mean this in a really literal way, like what torments you? Like, what is it that wakes you up in the middle of the night and haunts you? I think those are the things that maybe we might want to think a little bit more about when Lent rolls around. Like, you know, is it is it, do you have really do you have, are you in a bad marriage? Like, is this a time that you could think maybe we need to actually see a therapist? Like, you know, are you drinking too much? Like, is this, you know, is this more than just like, I'm having a glass of wine and like, is this a moment that you need to deal with some addiction in your life? Like, because those are the things, those real things are the things that keep us from seeing, from seeing how, you know, from seeing our relationships for what they are and how wonderful they can be, but also from seeing God's grace for what it is, because there are just other ways we're controlling our life and trying to keep it together and not admitting that things are falling apart. I don't know. It's like, what are you not admitting about that might be falling apart in your life is maybe the better question to ask at Lent. Not just like, you know, are you going to get ready for bikini season or, <laughs> or whatever? Because that's know, what I'm worried about. I mean, I was thinking, you know, that's yeah. my, these are like. Well, no, but I mean, I have. Because I've like, been in a face. one piece for years. And I yeah. really, you know, I, I, you know, I'm getting up there, but I'm getting, I'm taking my beach body back. That's absolutely. No, but I mean, I have a lot of friends who I love. I'm friends with them on Facebook and they're awesome. But like, they come from these traditions that don't do Lent at all. But they know enough about Lent to know it's like another opportunity to resolve something and it's like no you know like i don't know so maybe when faced with you know the resolute temptation the, the maybe we, as we look to the things that 
you know, Frank, Frank Lake has this great line um, about Jacob, Frank Lake, the great psychiatrist. He said that, you know, Jacob, he walks with a limp following the sun, but better to walk with a limp than, you know, cling to, you know, a false broken humanity, you know, a, a humanity in the worst sense, rather to like walk with this limp um, towards the, it's just the setting sun, you know, um, S-U-N or S-O-N, uh, a rising sun, you know, then, then to yeah. like sit outside the kingdom because you're clinging to this c- controlled, contrived humanity. Right. Receive. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I. Yeah. Yeah. And don't just resolve yeah. to receive. I think it's. Just pray that there will be real reception. Right. And. I, yeah, I mean, the, the, just these facets of our life, I love that image of, like, wearing brokenness on some level versus, like, trying to, like, hide it all or keep it all together or, you know, I mean, David Zoll's, like, one of his, one of my favorite pieces he's written is, like, that, like, your soul toupee <laughs> is showing, right? Like, it's the things that we, it's a great piece. Like, the things that we think we're doing a really good job of hiding, everyone you think about that one about. Seinfeld? You know what I mean? <laughs> And Elaine just grabs it. I don't yeah. like And I don't like who you yeah. are. You it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, yeah, because that's where mercy is, right? God wants us to have mercy, right? To give us mercy, right? So, anyway. Mercy, not well, sacrifice. Sarah, thank you. Sure. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking some time to spend with me and our listeners, and I'm thankful for it. And may you have a receptive hmm. Lent. Thanks, God. Thank you. Found the place to rest my All right, welcome back. On the microcast, Ethan K. Richardson. Ethan, what is the K for? Uh, it is uh, Kevorkian. Nice. That's that's better yeah. than Cowabunga. Yeah, yeah, it is. So when people get depressed, do they just stay away from you? They do. They do. Uh, they don't want to talk to me. Now you've been married. Like re- you were married, how long? Relative newlywed. A year and a, a half. year and a half. So. Yeah, the relative is becoming uh, less and less, less and less relative, or just relative to a different reality. Yeah, that's relative true. to different anniversaries. One's higher in number. <laughs> so, for our listeners, right? I don't know how much the average mockingbird listener or reader like knows about, uh, you know, just in general, the day-to-day operations down there. Mm-hmm. My question is, like, what's your day-to-day, like, vibe at Mockingbird look like? Like, are you just, are you just sitting around meditating on grace law with, like, the New Yorker? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. On my desk right now, there is um, a book by Frank Lake. Uh, Good choice. A book by uh, Emil Brunner. Which, what are you reading by Brunner? Uh, the Misunderstanding of the that's Church. That's a great book. Yeah, the church issue is coming out. I cannot um, say enough good about um, that little book. 
I have a, I have a stack of uh, Ringling Brothers Circus uh, stamps that we'll be using to send out uh, letters. So be on the lookout. And I have um, my new iMac. Ooh. Which I'm really, yeah. But besides that, yeah, I mean, it's most of my time is it's it's embarrassing how how much is spent doing uh, unproductive work, like um, like talking about television with Dave or CJ. That sounds so, like a dream job. It is. Are there a lot of yeah, office actually, pranks and shenanigans? Oh, let's see. Uh, the most recent one I can think of is just completely filling Dave's desk with Johnny Cash uh, stamps. But there's not you a, are a wild man. I am. I know we're crazy over time. here. You're a wild man. Yeah, we're pretty. We're pretty even keel over here. So tell me what we have on the docket for this week's another week's ends. Another week ends. Either. We um so I for the next the next issue of the magazine we've got uh, the church issue um, which everyone should pick when up. When is that coming but out? At, it's coming out um gosh this month. Uh, man, that's scary. And so for it yesterday, I had the chance to interview Molly Worthen, uh, who's an academic church historian. Um based in uh, at Chapel Hill, UNC. And she wrote a book called Apostles of Reason. And it's about the history of the American church and specifically the evangelical church. And it's super interesting. Um, but she's also a, an opinion writer for the New York Times. And her most recent one is talking about campus ministries like InterVarsity, um, Reformed University Fellowship, those sorts of um, chapters that are all along um, across the map and, and particularly ones that are at secular universities and how recently they're, they're kind of following, um, like they're, they're kind of being chased down by these universities because of the kinds of truth claims they make. Okay, so let me let me and, let me just pause you for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's two things. I had an experience uh, recently, very recently, where a Jewish therapist um, who says therapist, she does therapy, spiritual direction, pastoral counseling, wonderful person. She asked me, "What does it mean to identify as an evangelical?" And it was one of those things. So, you know. So in this piece, Molly wouldn't stop talking. About, she writes a lot about the evangelical church, right? I think that's interesting because yeah. it's a word that's thrown around a lot, right? You hear it on Fox yeah. or CNN and MSNBC because of the Iowa, the Iowa caucus, the evangelical voters. It's clear that a lot of people don't know what they're talking, like what they are. They know kind of they're important. Or like when Trump says, I'm very popular with the evangelicals. The evangelicals love me. I mean, you, you see, he was at Liberty <laughs> University. He said, and everybody, two Corinthians three with the two Corinthians. With the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty, eh? Liberty. So, <laughs> yeah, if, you, if someone, you're a cocktail party, and someone who just does, would not know an evangelical, if they shoved, you know, a piece of literature up their nose or something, like how would you in like three or four sentences describe it? Yeah, 
Um, I don't know if I'm the one to ask, but um, I asked Molly that and she, I mean, she wrote a book answering that question. And, and I think the answer there is that it's, it's become, it's become a very political answer and the word itself has become very politicized to the point that people who actually you might define as an evangelical a uh, hundred years ago or 200 years ago, um, they would never self-define themselves that way. Isn't, are you an evangelical? I'm no way. <laughs> All right. No way. I'm, I'm running from it. Um, but honestly, I mean, there are, there are numerous traits, uh, for one, the, the primacy of the gospel message and, um, kind of a, a low ecclesiology. I mean, those things, uh, have always kind of defined an evangelical. And in that case, I guess I am an evangelical. So here was my four sentence uh, answer. It yeah. was that, cause I went to an evangelical college. I wasn't really raised in a church, but and, and, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I, I have spent and continue to spend time in that world. So I wouldn't run away from the title, but I wouldn't, but I'm not the two. I said, look, what I've learned in my time in the evangelical world is that like, I would say that the core of, the, of, of that vibe is like, Jesus is for everybody. He saves, he saves everybody from something and for something. And it's, it's public truth. Like everybody should know it and you should, and you should, you know, be enthusiastically sharing that, that faith has to be personal. It's not necessarily private, but it always has to be personal. Even if you grow up in the community, you've got to at some point make it your own and that the Bible has to be able to speak kind of on the divine humans, on the divine side of the divine human line. It's got to be able to constantly critique the church even even we can argue about interpretation but we can't just minimize it when it says things that we don't like or they're or that you know put us in a cultural pressure cooker yeah so that would be uh, three tweets yeah that's great are you going to tweet them no i i I don't that would be longer than three tweets. it would be it would be a potential like blog post or something but so now we talk about molly worth and evangelical so now what she's talking about the new york times is when evangelicals these people who think everybody needs to know Jesus, who are passionate about personal faith and a a faith that's shaped, you know, a a theological imagination shaped primarily by the story of the Bible. How do people like that in, in parachurch campus ministries, what's going on with them on secular university campuses? Yeah. Well, I think on one hand you have, uh, you have these these groups that are being um, no longer recognized as campus organizations because in in one way or another they violate what a lot of secular universities have like a an all comers policy and um, you know Christianity is not the only religion that makes truth claims and truth claims that are not um, just personally carried, but that they believe are universal truths. So, like, if I'm if I'm the local intervarsity chapter, sometimes yeah. they'll have think will say things like somebody has to be, you know, a, you know, an observant, you know, Christian, as a, you know, like Protestant evangelical Christian, whatever. and people say, well, no, that's exclusive. Anybody that gets campus funding has to yeah. be open to, uh, even as an officer, anybody. And then you think if it was the, but if it was the climate change advocacy group. They probably wouldn't 
have have an anti-climate change advocate (laughs) it does seem like special pleading yeah yeah it does and you know and it all comes down at least worthiness saying it all comes down to how identity is viewed and in sort of the the liberal secular viewpoint um your identity is is how you experience the world around you and uh, you have the authority to speak based on your own identity categories and for no one else's. Um, but within the framework of Christian identity, um, that framework is given to you. It's not something that you define yourself. And so uh, what she's getting at is that the liberal secular university has had a hard time articulating um what's behind the way they think and how it's different from a religious perspective. I mean, this is just an increasing theme of the culture too, right? Like uh, I think it was um, Kirsten Powers wrote this book about censorship in the Academy and it were, you know, Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock just won't do stand up at college campuses anymore because they think the politically correct stuff, the identity politics that you, that like, Bill Maher says the same thing. It's like liberals just don't have a sense of humor anymore. Right, right, right. I mean, that's the, I almost didn't want to talk about this because, I mean, we've been writing about trigger warnings and um, oh, what's the other phrase that's that's being thrown around? Um, well, anyway, I mean, it, it's, there's, there's, plenty of, of writing we've done about being non-confrontational and uh, open. And, um, and yet what that, you know, law of tolerance and inclusion does is it ends up making um, no room for um, the person at the table who's intolerant. <laughs> so, um, or at least it's perceived as intolerant. Yeah. Perceived as intolerant. Can we jump to this la- this, uh, NPR story about yeah. the engineer who this guy is a guy, right? We're coming up. We just had the anniversary, 30th anniversary, right? Of the challenger tragedy explosion. This guy was actually the, one of the guys that was saying the cold seals on the shuttle are seem to fail at a certain temperature. And this is going to be one of the coldest launches we've ever done. Yeah, and so he, um, his name is Bob Ebeling, and yeah, he was he was on Ground Zero basically talking to uh, the NASA team the night before the launch and telling them that um, it's going to blow up. You know, this this uh, this operation is going to go down, and and so NPR kind of tells the story again about what. Um, what went down that night and um, he just could not convince NASA to make the decision to do it otherwise. And um, the ship goes up, blows up. And for the last 30 years, he has been, he's been living in regret. And um, I'll just read this, this last little bit here. Um, A religious man. This is something he has prayed about for the past 30 years. I think that was one of the mistakes that God made, Ebeling says softly. He shouldn't have picked me for the job, but next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask him, why me? He picked a loser. 
And I'm just thinking like, oh my gosh, what a heavy, heavy um, responsibility and weight to have put on yourself for 30 years to be carrying this around. Yeah, regret is a dangerous thing, or it can be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it interesting. Um, I mean, the picture that he has of guilt, it's, it's also funny, too, because we think of um, the gospel message as relief and the things we've, we've done and, and we've left undone, that that relief is, uh, is handed to us every Sunday. And, um, and it's the grace and relief that actually can lead to repentance, right? Like it's not like repentance isn't the precursor for grace relief. It's actually the byproduct of it. You're right. If repentance is a change of mind and being able to reimagine your story in the world in light of God's unconditional love, regret often, I feel like it's like, it's like PTSD. It often just keeps you like, I think if what it means to be human is to have a story so you can look back and look forward. And then orient your present in light of that. Like what PTSD does, it kind of it keeps you in the past, which mm, you right. can't really imagine the future and you can't really live in the present. You're kind of locked in this loop. And so it, I almost, I was thinking that as I was reading that. It's like, it's the regret almost, it, 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 it keeps you stuck in a condemning frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost, it's like this sports center highlight reel. Um, like rolling that, that you can't stop watching the sort of the blooper that, that was your, that became the defining moment of your career. You know, um, we recently had a post about the, the bills, um, you know, the four falls of Buffalo. Yeah. yeah. And um, it reminded me of that too. I mean, that kicker who has forever, um, you know, his, his name has been, uh, defined by the 46 yard kick he missed in the Super Bowl. And, um, I said Scott I mean, Norwood. Our, yeah. I always Norwood. think field goal kicker, it's the worst, it's the toughest thing because, you know, people, you know, they don't remember very often when you succeed because it's three points here. But when you miss a big yeah. one, yeah. The, I feel like punting <laughs> right. is a, being a punter, it's less glorious, but it's also, you know, it's less shame prevalent, you know, like, Right, right. No one, no one remembers a punter's name. Right. Yeah, yeah. But a kicker, man. You're, um, gosh, yeah. You're, you're. The ones you make are just ones you should have made, and the ones you miss are, are catastrophic. Well, there's a lot of other good stuff um, in other weekends, and I hope that as people, you know, get out of bed tomorrow, or whatever, get their coffee and. Danish or whatever regionally as their Saturday morning special or treat. <laughs> Pop tarts. Pop tart that they look through. And also that uh they are they really graciously attain some relief from any regrets because we all have them. Yeah, we do. We do. I regret that joke I made earlier <laughs> on this podcast. Well thanks, Ethan. I really appreciate the time you spent on this and um I encourage everybody to check out another weekend and to look with bated breath and anxious expect or aware, you know, joyful expectation <laughs> to the, to the arrival in their mailbox of the church edition of the magazine. 
Thanks, Scott. Thanks again for listening to the Mockingcast. And if you like what you heard, please stop over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. And just a quick update on our Tyler conference in Texas. All the info is up on our website, mbird.com. This is all the content you heard about on this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. And as always, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we'll see you next week. God bless. Have a great weekend.